Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week we'll join the gang to talk about what it is to be socially just, how far into politics a pastor should lead his congregation, and what's more important, virtue or legislation. But first, something new. Let's join Amy, Carl, and Todd. Well, today on Mortification of Spin, we're going to introduce a new section for our bi-weekly bully pulpits, Desperate Theologizing, where one member of the team will highlight an article or something they've seen online that indicates just how desperate the evangelical world has become to offer crass theological insights, in inverted commas, into some aspect of our lives. Today, uh, Amy, I think you have an article which we wanted to highlight. Yeah, um, interestingly, Christianity Today has been running this series on the sex we don't talk about, on hermeneutics. Um, and I've read some of those articles, and I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to think, you know, well, there's a reason why we don't talk about these things publicly, um, especially this latest article, How I Learned to Love My Period. Oh, <laughs> please, please, please go on. I have, I have no comments to make. At this I, I, I mean, there's this whole theology given in the article, um, how the peri- our periods aren't a direct result of like a curse on us after the fall, but, um, and how we can learn to love Love them. Um, I wasn't convinced at the end at all. But the strangest part of this article was um, this quote right here. I often thought of wearing a festive red dress when I have my period to celebrate this time, that another cycle is over and that another is coming. Mm. I've never felt like wearing a red dress festively (laughs) to celebrate. I I mean, there's just a reason why. There's a reason why we don't talk about this as publicly, yeah. Yeah. and I, I don't see the need to celebrate and theologize. Yeah, desperate theologizing indeed. Well, there you go. So this week's prize for desperate <laughs> theologizing goes to Amy F. Davis Abdallah, guest let's writer, just, Christianity yes. Today. Let's uh, just leave that to girlfriend talk, and, and <laughs> we don't need to publish series on that. Yeah. Not every square inch, I think. Not every Not square <laughs> Please. Please. Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. Oh, you're a hard one, but I know got your reasons These things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow Well, thanks for joining us. Considering all that's uh, going on and a lot of the discussions going on in churches these days, we thought it would be a- an interesting topic to bring up, the, the so-called the doctrine of the spirituality of, of the church, the spirituality of the church. Now, if you've never heard of that phrase, it, it's, it's not uncommon, certainly not unknown among confessional reformed types. 
uh, both Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists. We, we, we've heard about, we've written about the spirituality of the church. But I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding about what the doctrine of the spirituality of the church means. So I want to kind of kick it over uh, to Carl and Amy just so that we can kind of briefly explain what we're talking about, first of all, when we talk about the spirituality of the church. And then we can kind of get into issues of uh, what we're not talking about, maybe some potential problems, but also uh, maybe examples uh, from the scriptures, um, uh, something from our confession of faith that, that kind of undergirds this, uh, this doctrine of spirituality of the church. But let's deal with, first of all, what is it? What does it mean? Well, this, there, there is a, a variety of opinion on the spirituality of the church, exactly where its bounds lie, but primarily it refers to the idea that the church should be the church. The church's primary focus is to be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church's primary tools for achieving that are to be the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. So we might say the spirituality of the church should be, in an ideal world, a very good check upon the church. Well, the spirituality of the church is, is referring to the idea that the church is primarily a spiritual body, that the task of the church is to point people to heavenly realities, to focus their minds on things that are above, and the way that the church does that is through preaching the gospel and administering uh, the sacraments. Uh, where it becomes sticky, of course, is on issues such as how the church relates to the world around, particularly the political world around in, a, in an election season. What role does the church have in shaping how people vote? Does the church have a role in shaping how people vote? Somebody who holds to high the spirituality of the church would by and large shy away from any kind of direct political engagement or involvement as the church Mm-hmm. and focus on preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments. Right. So the question then becomes in response to that, uh, what about occasions of significant societal wickedness? What, what, does, what does the church do, what do pastors do in Berlin in the 1930s or in Mississippi in the 1950s and 60s? Do they retreat from those issues, or do they attack those issues, so to speak? I think one has to avoid doing either. I think, first of all, if you're preaching consistently through Scripture, if you're preaching the whole counsel of God, then obviously some of the things you say are going to connect to things going on in the wider world. Obvious example would be abortion. Mm -hmm. If you're preaching on the Ten Commandments and you come to Thou shalt not kill— I think it's perfectly legitimate in that context to highlight the fact that abortion is killing of the innocent. Mm -hmm. The question for me would be, should the church change that application into political action as the church? Mm -hmm. In other words, should I as a minister be preaching against abortion when the text demands it, and then saying to the people in my church, you need to be picketing the abortion clinic up the road as members of this church. That's where I start to to think Mm -hmm. that we need to start drawing lines and say, well, it may well be that Christians should picket abortion clinics, Mm -hmm. but it is not for me as pastor to require that of my Mm -hmm. congregants, because if I did, I would have to start disciplining those who didn't do it. So, you know, that would be one issue for me where the church engages the issue, we're opposed to abortion, but does not get 
involved in a direct partisan way in the political process, mm-hmm. if I could put it like that. Right, right. I think one distinction, too, is that um, the spirituality of the church, this doctrine points to the redemptive rule of Christ with his people, mm-hmm. which is different from his rule in the political sphere, where um, you know, we see him as maintainer and creator and sustainer, but um, through different means that we don't quite understand even how he's putting all of his enemies under his feet right now. Mm-hmm. But we, we have the means of grace in the church, right. and all of us come as desperate, poor sinners who need redemption. Mm-hmm. I, confessionally, um, uh, I'm an, an ordained Presbyterian pastor who's taken vows to uphold to believe and to teach according to the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, believing that it is an exact summary of uh, that system of doctrine found within the Bible. And part of where Presbyterians a- affirm the spirituality of the church is in uh, Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 31, uh, part 4, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. That's a pretty good statement because it does affirm when someone by way of conscience is bound to speak into an issue aspects of, of, of the civil authority, particularly when, when we ourselves live in a, uh, a society where, where individuals are encouraged to participate, uh, either by petition, even all the way up to, to holding office, uh, we can do that. But we also want to affirm what Jesus said. What is it? John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah. That mm-hmm. means something. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think we need to realize that, you know, there are some issues, for example, abortion, where it seems to me very, very clear that that is murder Hmm. and there is no room for Christian disagreement on that, so to speak. Other issues, for example, the rate of taxes. Right. Uh, a social, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, say a socialist economy versus a free market economy. I think Christians can legitimately disagree on those things. There may be technically a right and wrong position. Some economies may work better than others, right. but I think Christians can agree to differ on a whole host of things. The difficulty, of course, is drawing the line. Where do you get? to that point where, well, that's an issue we can agree to differ on, and this one isn't. Um, abortion, that seems to me very clear. It's murder. Christians yeah. can't agree to differ on that. Right. At the other end of the scale, you've got you know, 23 pence in the pound or 22 pence in the pound on income tax. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the Christian <laughs> position on income tax? It, right. you know, so there are, I, I think the, the, there is ultimately going to be a gray area where there are some issues where Christians have to debate whether there is a Christian position on it or not. And I suspect there are very, actually very few issues in the wider society on which there would be a non-negotiable Christian position. Right. Yeah. Well, our Christianity influences the way we think about politics and everything, and, and as we are the salt of the earth. But, you know, I think all people are called under the great commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbor as ourself. 
And I see all that as playing out as part of the great commandment. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's fascinating to me um, uh, that that Jesus had so little to say about uh, injustices going on during his day, hmm. and there would have been great injustices going on in Jesus's day, far yeah. more, I would argue, yeah. than are going on typically in Western society in the twenty first century. Because yeah. it's, it's easy to point to all the injustices going on in our midst, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to point inside our own hearts mm-hmm. at the sin that's there. Right, yeah, right. And that's what he was doing. That's what the church does. You know, it's, yeah. we're to make I, disciples. It, it's interesting to me also, you know, Jesus, because here, you know, Jesus had several opportunities to speak very directly to injustice. Uh, for, for instance, um, the issue of paying, paying taxes, you know, his answer was very simple, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Jesus could have very easily, Jesus was not ignorant about uh, what taxes were used for at that time and, and how they were oftentimes collected in a very corrupt way and uh, the, the corruption that went up all the way uh, to Caesar's doorstep. It would have been very easy for Jesus um, to speak very prophetically and condemnatory about those things, but he chose not to. And, and I think that that silence, by and large, um, is worthy of consideration. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same with the Apostle Paul. I mean, when you think of the civil magistrate that Paul's referring to in mm-hmm. Romans 13, that's a pretty bad civil magistrate. Right. right. Uh, and yet Paul talks about uh, you know, honoring, yeah. obeying the civil magistrate. Right. Um, I'd also add so much of what goes on in the world today, this talk about justice. I've seen how a number of so-called social justice issues have been picked up by the Reformed and Evangelical world mm-hmm. recently without any fundamental questioning of exactly what social justice is. Mm. And I think, again, there's a danger for the church to, to get hypnotized by the, the cliches of the world around us without actually thinking through what justice is. Is justice... Is it a, a, a virtue or is it legislation, for example? Mm. I've not really mm-hmm. seen that question asked in evangelical mm-hmm. reform circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all manner of questions relating to the current political climate that, that would need to be addressed before the church could speak with any degree of authority yeah. Yeah. on these kind of yeah. issues. And, and this, this is a simplification an oversimplification to be sure it is a generalization but i think there's merit to my generalization which is this is that so much of what went wrong in northern presbyterianism in the 20s and 30s um had to do with a rejection of the spirituality of the church now there was more to it but certainly the rise of the social gospel so to speak had a great deal to do with the loss of the guardrails of the spirituality of the church yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, and, again, and again, that's not to say that, that we as Christians do not, you know, John the Baptist had his head chopped off because he confronted the king about his immorality. Mm-hmm. But, but as, as you said, Carl, that's very different from Christians stepping in and trying to dictate tax policy, yeah. um, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, how many, how many parks there are in a city and beginning to make that a gospel issue yeah. mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. And it's always, I think, much easier to criticize the sins of society or to repent of sins that one has not personally committed mm-hmm. than it is 
to repent of your own sins. That's my right. point. I mean, it, it, it's important for us to strive for justice as citizens and as Christians, you know, individually mm-hmm. and in our families. But um, we need to first look in this, at the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, that's what the church does for us. You know, the mission of the church is to make disciples and to baptize and to minister sacraments, to preach word. And, and then we are sent out. Yeah. into society and and the implications are there for us then and yeah and and when jesus had his chance uh prior to his ascension to tell his disciples this is what you're to be about he, he spoke very clearly on that yeah about making disciples baptism mm-hmm. that's the mission of the church of mm-hmm. yeah and it does have implications then you know mm-hmm. we're new creations sent out into the world and we're mediating god's presence to the world but the church has to be the church yeah mm-hmm. like that's yeah. the most important thing yeah. Well, in an election year in the United States, this is a, a significant topic. Um, Christians will continue to disagree both on the spirituality of the church and on the, the boundaries of the spirituality of the church. But I think what we do need to do is reflect very, very clearly uh, upon what exactly is the purpose and the mission of the church, how that connects to people in our congregations, and how that translates into how we and our brothers and sisters in Christ live in civic society. I doubt very much that we've solved any of those questions for you today, (laughs) but we hope that what we've said has at least sowed some uh, thoughts for further reflection. So thank you very much for joining us today on Mortification of Spin Bully Pulpit. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and we look forward to being with you next time. Chased our pleasures here, dug our treasures there. But can we still recall the time we cried? Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. This week at our podcast page, we have a message, The Two Kingdoms, given by Michael Horton at the 1994 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Head over to mortificationofspin.org to hear it. And join us next week when Tom Schreiner, professor and associate dean of the School of Theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, stops by to talk about justification and why it matters. But many of our listeners are pastors and may be wondering, well, what's the practical payoff in my week-to-week ministry of this, of this doctrine? Why should I be interested and concerned in the doctrine of justification? As a lay person, I find that I'm very passionate about this topic, but it's so hard to communicate to other lay people why it still matters. They look at it as an academic issue or just splitting hairs. And so why is it important for for lay people as well? And how can we communicate that to them? So does James, does James contradict Paul? Uh, No, he does not. No, he does not. (laughs) This program would end if I said yes, right? (laughs) All that next time. And in the meantime, head over to mortificationofspin.org to listen to The Two Kingdoms by Michael Horton. We'll talk to you next week.
did I ever send you the, the advertisement for my lecture? Yes. Oh, yeah. So it was like funny. This, and the, and the advertisement of my lecture was, there will be a lecture at 7.30 on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Who was lecturing or where yeah. it was? I yeah. fell on the floor laughing at that point. <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> this girl really doesn't like me, I thought. <laughs> 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 oh, I should have kept a screenshot of that. Uh, <laughs> They got Tullian on campus that week as well, and Tullian had got his own website devoted yeah. to um, their web page. Up there with his whole spiel. They got this. There is a lecture at seven thirty. <laughs> with no picture of Carl, nothing like just no title, no nobody, no <laughs> idea who was giving it, no location given. In fact, it actually said there will be a boring lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I should be glad that she at least gave the time and day. <laughs> there will be a lecture. Full stop. Would have been a more concise way. <laughs> 